On this episode, I sat down with jumps coach Rob Assisi. No surprise, we talked about jumping and several factors tied to programming, assessment, potentiation, and more in regards to getting the most out of jumps within your training. As I reference on the show, I found jumps are a very powerful tool to help athletes gain a better understanding on how to interact with the ground. Jumps can also be amazing tools for increasing coordinative abilities of athletes. As we talk about potentiation and how it can help bring another dynamic to training sessions, Rob shares how isometrics are a staple within his program. Isometrics can create bodily awareness, aid recovery, build strength in certain joint angles, and potentiate certain joint angles and actions. This is a topic that I've become increasingly interested in over the years and thoughtful programming and teaching athletes how to own the ground and air can go a long way to chaining force production to high velocity movements such as sprints. This is a great conversation, so without further ado, let's get to it. We can't get this show started without taking time out to reference and thank the sponsor of this week's episode over at The Amino Co. As you've heard me reference on previous episodes, Amino Co's Perform Blend is a big part of my daily supplement regimen. And that's because physical and mental fatigue is often the biggest barrier to success in any activity involving strength, endurance, and mental focus. Achieving your body's peak muscle response is crucial for maximum athletic performance. Therefore, I've been looking for something for quite some time that could help me boost my athletic performance during my training and long workouts and also maximize both my recovery and performance when strength training. That's where Aminoco comes in. I'm so glad I was able to find them. They specialize in 100% science-backed medical nutrition supplements based on research first funded by NASA. I've been using their Perform product, which is an essential amino acid-based formulation that I simply add to my water bottle, and I'm off to the races. Perform also helps build your endurance and prepares you for harder training sessions and workouts. Perform has been shown to improve muscle performance, reduce fatigue and recovery times, and increase the benefits from workouts. It's keto-friendly, soy-free, vegan, gluten-free, and it doesn't have any of those nasty non-GMOs. Perform is formulated to minimize muscle breakdown during exercise and maximize muscle growth after exercise. You can check out their science by visiting aminoco.com forward slash FTG. Again, that's aminoco.com forward slash FTG. I'll have links in the show notes. I'll also have links on various posts on my social media platform. So make sure to check it out if this piques your interest. And use the code FTG at checkout to save 30% off. Now, on to this week's show. Welcome to From the Ground Up, Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and my guest today is Rob Assisi. And Rob, I'm interested to have you on because I love jumps, and I know that you're a jumps coach for track and field, but I feel like jumps are just an area, plyometrics, jumps, learning how to interact with the ground is so very important whenever you're starting the process of developing athletes. Uh, For instance, many times on this podcast, I've referenced actually that I use jumping in reference to increased sprinting metrics to slow it down, teach people what ground contact should feel like and teach them those intensities. And then I can take that into the sprinting process. So jumping is something that in the last couple of years, I've increasingly 
gained interest in and began to use more and more in my own processes. So interested to kind of go down all these rabbit holes, talk about the different ends of the force velocity curve and everything, and just kind of how we can stack those throughout a year to develop athletes properly. So before we get started, Rob, I'm going to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself, talk about all the things you're involved in right now, and then we'll jump into the specifics. Yeah. So I'm a teacher, math teacher, and, uh, now track coach. I've also coached football and cross country. Been at it. I think I just finished my 19th year. Right now, I'm an assistant on the, uh, our boys' uh, track staff. I've been there. I think this finished uh, my sixth year uh, with a focus on jumps and then the overlap that occurs with sprinters. Uh, besides that, I uh, train athletes privately um, out of my garage. And um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it, man. I mean, I, I do some writing for Simply Faster and some other outlets and um, done, done some presenting, but, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a fun journey for sure. You referenced your writing for simply faster and a lot of the things that we'll discuss today, will tie to some of those different articles and tie to a particular text because like force production and we'll use the word for now force absorption can be important things that we can consider. Like I'm an English teacher as well. So I often think about like, Oh, we're just using different words to describe things. And I've actually seen you reference that in an article as well. Like sometimes it's really just kind of like semantics and like word choice sometimes. So some of those things fit in there and kind of meld in there. I'm often thinking about that, but we're going to talk about force and how important it is into the overall output metric, which is what you often see with a jump. Referencing back to an article that I looked at you, you did a review on Dan Cleather's text force. And the starting point is let's talk about impulse and for the audience, let's define what impulse is. And then we can kind of get into the different ways in which impulse can be changed throughout different metrics. Sure. So impulse is just the, it's the accumulation of force over a specific time. Uh, So if you're looking at a graph, a force time curve, um, it's just the area uh, that's underneath the curve. And there's numerous ways that we can we want to increase that impulse, um, obviously, depending on you know the activity we're doing. So, yeah, there's a, a few different ways that we can do that, but that's impulse in a nutshell. It's just the accumulation of force over a time interval. And as we're looking at that, like to me, as I look at impulse and the three different ways in which impulse can be changed, I think about like. I know periodization sometimes can be a word that's kind of like a cuss word almost because I feel like there's like a mixture throughout. It's not a linear uh, progress as I typically look at. But as far as impulse, you can either increase the amount of time that you spend on the ground. Anybody who spends more time on the ground should theoretically be able to to produce more force. Then you also have getting stronger. I, I suppose what most people would assume as far as like power output, like being able to Uh, strike the ground and be able to output more over time. And then you also have rate of force development as well. So you have three different metrics here. Let's kind of talk about whenever you're, let's, let's take it back to like novice individuals. Whenever you're dealing with jumpers, do you encourage them to get strikes where they spend a lot of time on the ground and learn to produce strength from the ground to begin with? I think you have to kind of think of it in terms of just like task task specific. So when we're talking about those like three different ways uh, that we can improve impulse, I, I, I don't know if I necessarily talk to the athlete about that, but we, we go into just like, like a simple example would be, it, it could be from the ground or it could be if they're on a box. If I said, hey, I want you to fall off this box and then jump up as high as you can and don't spend that much time on the ground, they go ahead and they do that. And then 
if I said, Hey, you're going to fall off this box and you're going to just sit there for two seconds. And now you're going to try to jump up, you know, what do you notice? And obviously in the second case, um, they're not able to utilize any elastic energy. So they're, they're not going to jump as high. Um, and that gives them kind of just the, an idea of where free energy return can come into play and that kind of thing. And gives them an awareness of like what ground contact time can do. And then from there, we can then go into more of the training components. So I just want to give them an idea of like the impact that ground contact time can have at first. And it can be good or bad, I guess. But in terms of the training uh, component of it, um, I, I like to allow them to do like, if we're just doing like a counter movement jump and I watch them jump, I'll go through and I'll just give them some different cues. And in some cases, like they may, you know, you'll see some athletes that load really quickly and, you know, there's not much bend in the knee and then they, they pop up and, and then I will ask them, okay, now what I want you to do is actually just try to go lower and just see how that feels. And again, it's just giving them a little bit more awareness uh, of like different methodology in terms of like creating force or, or impulse o- over a court, a period of time. Now I heard you reference depth jumps and, and like uh, altitude jumps, which, you know, the vocabulary there again, at semantics and everything and like the difference in between them, but depth versus ground based to start. If you're starting with, do you typically start with people from heights to learn about that landing mechanism? And we're not going to talk about force absorption per, per se at the yep. moment, but ground-based versus depth jumps like what is your ratio there or where would you prefer to start someone first jump session with you usually uh well i mean we'll do testing so uh, i like to uh, a standard counter movement jump a squat jump and i also like a i call it the scandinavian rebound jump test which is just a um it's, it's sort of like a, a 510 test but it's just gradually increasing the height of the jump and still trying to minimize ground contact time and usually have them take about 10 jumps to do that. And we're looking at RSI for that test. So those are what we'll usually start with. And then from there, I have an idea then of of what their counter movement jump is. And then we can set uh, and maybe like our second session, we can go into dropping off that height, what their vertical was. And, And from there, we would do just what I call altitude drops. Uh, where they're just sticking the landing uh, to start with. Whenever you're doing all, all these different things, as far as looking at, like you said, cues earlier, like sometimes not saying anything and watching people move and how they respond to different things, like telling them, okay, as soon as you land off the box, I want you to pop up. That tells them to jump quickly. And sometimes as far as like the hinge versus the squat based movement, because you find people, you can think about it a couple of different ways, but some people prefer to be more squatty versus more hinge based in their jump metrics. So mm-hmm. as far as like jump, I guess you would say like profiles, like what do you, how do you take that into account as to how you would, I guess, transfer jumps into uh, considerations as well? I personally, uh, as uh, most people who come to me to, for training or are, and, and when I'm coaching track, we're, we're about improving speed. So I like to see when I do those jumps tests, I, I always tie it back to how um, I like to look at how they move when they sprint. So I use it kind of like, a, you know, I'll have a wide variety of tests and then we'll see like how they correlate. So usually just by, you know, watching someone who's uh, more hingy, they tend to be maybe more of an elastic kind of, you know, bouncy athlete, um, as opposed to someone who would be more like a squatting movement when they jump, they tend to be your more like tension based, like really good accelerator that uh, sprints. How I always, when I watch them jump, I, I like to think of it in terms of that. and 
I, I don't have a preference with, with how they jump, <laughs> you know, um, I think we all have strategies and, and there's certain things that we can do to improve outputs there. Uh, but I, you know, they have, they come all, most of the time I'm dealing with teenagers, they come in with some idea on how to jump. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to build around what they bring to the table as opposed to just go wholesale change. Those are good ideas because like, I really don't have preferences either because like you have, I've said it on multiple occasions as well. Like you have to have models, but at the same time, like not everyone fits the specific model that like you've been preaching towards. It's like finding out what works best for each athlete. Some athletes may need more weight room practices or more jump practices or more sprint practices. Like you kind of referenced there, like being like force driven versus like elastic return. Um, so that's something else like it's difficult to do like in a larger setting because I typically deal with football athletes primarily and then I and they run track and they play basketball, they play multiple sports. Right. So um, but dealing mostly with football athletes, but finding like how do you tease out those little bitty individual things along the way? So there's no really preference there. But like the point is, like whenever they come out day one, I don't want to say you can't do this. Like I like right. to watch them jump and I like to get metrics and see how those grow over time. So I can 100 yeah. percent agree with that. Yeah. One thing I, I will say <laughs> about whether they are more squatty or hingy is there's a really good percentage of athletes who really struggle using their arms. And I don't know if you've seen the same thing, but that's usually the, the big thing that I notice is like, uh, especially with like that, uh, Scandinavian rebound jump test, like their arms are like all over the place. Uh, so that's, that's usually, uh, one thing that I'd say those two areas have in common is there's maybe like half of the athletes that really, really struggle knowing what to do their arms or use their, use their arms optimally. So this would seem kind of, I guess, intuitive, but at the same time, everyone has different preferences and we all look at things different ways. Like with you referencing that whenever I had David Weck on, we talked a lot, he talked a lot about the upper body mechanics, um, and how they would tie mm -hmm. to sprinting and sprinting is very close to related to jumping, just depending on how we look at it. My name on my podcast is From the Ground Up. So I'm normally focusing on like foot action up, right? But at the same time, we can understand both of them can be beneficial. But I do find like the idea, I do want feet punching. I do want hands punching a lot of the times for those higher intensity jumps. So what are some of the things like as you build people's understanding? I know we'll get into crescendo jumps and everything here uh, in a little bit because that's something that I've actually utilized and, and taken from you. But as far as like punching the ground, like are there any metrics or how do you slowly bring in those intensities? I think it's athlete dependent, um, first and foremost. So I, in terms of like, we can go into like that periodization, uh, component, like usually I think one thing that we have to be careful with in regards to jump training or plyometrics is like, it is, uh, it's highly individual. I, I think so much more individualized than sprinting, like for our track athletes, whether they're a freshman or they're senior, I'd say 80 plus percent of what our sprinters do in practice is, is identical. You know, it's, it's, it's almost the same. And, you know, maybe our seniors have a few different twists. Uh, but when I'm with my jump group and I got, you know, 20 to 25 kids and we're doing a specific plyometric activity, such as bounding, there might be seven different things going on within that group. You know, three athletes are performing more like lateral type skater jumps or bounds. Uh, some might be doing something that's more diagonal uh, based. Some might be doing like skip for height or skip for distance. Some might be doing like a more rudimentary bounding complex, like hopping and, you know, some, with some switching mixed in there. Others might be doing like a six bound test, but they start from a static start. 
then uh, another group might be doing a six bound test where they're going, uh, when they have an approach and it's just based on where they're at. And, you know, we kind of see what they look like from a higher intensity activity, and then we work our way back from there. So I would say just in terms of the intensity component, it is uh, solely athlete based and I'm, I'm a big proponent of making sure that, you know, I, I try to place them in that right, the right area and progress them on because I want them to be, pre- be prepared for an intensity. That way they can get the most out of it. I can remember, you know, beginning trying to teach bounding and like that may be one of the most frustrating things I've ever done in my entire coaching mm-hmm. career. And then like slowly I just began to like, and this isn't, I'm not saying the perfect way to do it, but me dealing with a larger group, I started to put them like in an assembly line and I would request a certain bound. And then along the way, I would begin to switch the bound like as we went as far as like intensity, like it may have been like a single leg. Well, then we would do alternating legs because they have difficulties landing on one leg and dealing with that intensity um, and being able to produce the ground contacts that I want. So like putting people on a line, number one, is one of the most important things that I've done because it gives you like a movement reference. And then number two, like actually reducing the size of the overall group to where I'm dealing with. 10 to 15 athletes versus 50 at a time has been, you know, Mm -hmm. extremely important to be able to watch uh, as a coach who's trying to get that skill out there. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just uh, in general, I think um, everybody wants for whatever reason with bounding, like people just want to do the end product. And, you know, if I, if we had, we have a hundred, I think we had around 140 kids at one point in our program this year. I mean, there's probably maybe like 30 that could bound effective, right? So it, it it's something that that definitely takes uh, takes some patience uh, from the coach and and the athlete too. I mean, they they want to do the things that they see the upperclassmen uh, doing because it looks cool, it looks fun, it looks like it's going to make make them a, a better athlete. They want to rush to that, but yeah, I mean, you know, when we when we go out and we sprint, you know, our, our freshmen are sprinting, our seniors are sprinting. There's really not much variance in what they're doing right? Maybe a senior is doing a fly 20 instead of a fly 10, right? But when we, when we look at that bounding component, it's like, you know, there's, I have multiple things going on just, and, you know, I try to explain to them, Hey, this is, this is what's best for you at this moment. Show me that you can do this well and you can progress to the next step. I guess probably one of the reasons that I would say that jumps have become more important as I've gone through the training process is that I always tell kids that, sprinting is really fast jumping. We just can't really tell it because we're cycling through so fast and mm-hmm. everything's happening. So at an accelerated manner. Um, so like, that's like, you kind of talked about it earlier, like taking that and then bringing it back to, they're not saying that teaching someone to do a really good single leg jump is going to make them chain directly to sprinting, but like, it may be an aha moment. Like one of the things I've said, like I had a foot specialist on, and we talked about, you know, the foot and everything. One of the things I said that he really liked was that, I want to teach people to own the ground. And I think jumping teaches people to own the ground because if I was to look at my own profile, I teach, I'm a coach of powerlifting. I've lifted a lot of weights in my life, but like in the latter part of my athletic development, I've taken jumping to heart and learned to be more elastic through that. So like I probably never would have developed that capability and probably would have stayed very acceleration dominant if I did not learn to be more elastic and to get that return. I wouldn't have found it through just running, 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 jumping Mm -hmm. and interacting with the ground time and time again. Program is the way to do it, in my opinion. So I've had personal experience as well. Yeah. And when, so I was a jumper uh, and, through high school, college. And, and I was always, you know, relatively, 
I mean, like I was the, the type of kid who would see something up high and I would want to touch it. Right. I mean, that's just how I grew up. Like I, I always want to jump. I'm five uh, and then, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and we, it, one of the like awesome things about like growing up in the eighties and nineties was they, they came out with adjustable basketball hoops. Right. So like my, my driveway was one of the first ones that had adjustable basketball hoops. So it was always like trying, you know, dude, you could dunk on eight, six, you know, that kind of thing. So like jumping was like a part of like my, you know, growing up. But then uh, when I got to uh, coaching, uh, I was primarily dealing, I was on the girl side, I was dealing with sprints and hurdles. Um, and, you know, we had jump components involved in, within our programming. But what I really notice now is, is uh, focusing more on the jumps is just like uh, how much the interplay between the two and how they can really help each other out. So I, I 100% agree with you. I think it gives you, it, there's more teachable moments uh, just because you're on the ground a little bit longer. And I think that I've become a better coach having to deal with, now granted, I'm just dealing primarily with single leg jumps and track and field, but, you know, just kind of having an awareness of how the foot interacts with the ground there and, you know, how I can utilize that to maybe help a sprinter uh, that that's struggling uh, with the way that they're interacting with the ground. So as far as jumps, like being a track and field coach is a little bit different, but one of the things that I love the most is like potentiation and contrast between things. And one of the things I use a lot as far as jumps is potentiation. So are there any ways in which you attempt to potentiate different metrics of a jump in regards in certain cycles, I guess you would say too, you could talk about are there times where you would be more likely to utilize that um, as well to build a jumping profile? Oh, there's tons. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, when we're going through and we do standard, you know, counter movement jump, squat jump, that, that uh, rebound jump test or um, bounding tests for different distance, whatever, like there's numerous ways. I mean, I, I can remember 10 years ago, um, close to 10 years, probably when like uh, I saw uh, Chris Corfist and Dan Victor speak for the first time. And they, they talked about using like just the the mental side of things where they would have athletes just say, I'm the greatest 10 times before they jump. Right. So that's like a, a little thing in terms of potentiation uh, for whatever reason, people do that. And like, I'd say like 70% of kids after they do that, they jump higher. So a little bit non-traditional type of uh, potentiation. Um, I'll use uh, different overcoming isometrics. Uh, we'll use, uh, you know, standard, you know, strength-based activities, a deadlift, a squat, whatever. Uh, one thing I've been getting into recently uh, more is uh, utilizing water bag. I know they get crapped on a lot, but like every time I have a kid perform an exercise with a water bag and then they go to jump or sprint, it's better than previous reps. And I've done it a variety of different ways to kind of tease out like any like I know when they're going to typically hit their best sprint, you know? So like I've, I've teased out that idea that it's just, Oh, they're, they're here. And that's when they typically hit their best sprint. So it's been that that's been uh, definitely a newer one. And uh, I think it just kind of gives the brain a little bit more of a uh, wake up call uh, in a way and, and allows the athlete to produce more force, more impulse. I've used sprinting to potentiate jumping. I, so there's, I mean, a ton of different things I've used infinity walks to, to potentiate jumping. So like all those things, like I'll just try different things. I've done the neural spike balls on the bottom of the feet. Uh, so anytime like an athlete's in a lull, I, I'll just like say, Oh, let's try this and see what happens. Um, I've used RPR to potentiate jumps. So that, yeah, I, there's, there's no shortage. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> sure. many things you're saying there, like it's just 
another input. And like, like you said, like if somebody especially reaches like a plateau, like if you give someone a different experience, then it's completely and totally, it, it refreshes their body almost. Like if we, if we were to take that and then boil it back down, like to our own experience as humans, like you go to the nine to five job again and again and again. And then eventually, like if you got a new experience, if you got a day away, if you got a day's rest, like you're, it's a completely different input, right? You come back probably the next time and it's a different experience for you. Right. So like, to me, like that's how I think about potentiation and contrasting. It just gives us the opportunity to see like here and here and look at the different mm -hmm. ends of the pole. Um, so that's why I love contrasting and potentiation so much whenever it's done, I guess you would say tastefully. Like, I feel like sometimes people may build like a menu that's too much. And by the time mm -hmm. you get to the end of it, it's like, did it potentiate it or did it destroy it? You know? So like mm -hmm. finding that proper balance of volume is something else that's extremely important. I feel like as well. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you know, what you were saying made me think of, you hear of like professional track athletes who change coaches. And a lot of times when they change coaches, all of a sudden they perform better. And it's just because they're doing something different, right? It's not like, you know, and maybe, maybe that coach is better. But a lot of times it's just they're, they're doing different things and it's, the body is just refreshed and, and they perform well. And I feel like that happens quite a bit in that professional scene. And, and something else, I guess, this can kind of peek into another point here, like that just kind of flashed with me with jumps is that jumps give us the opportunity as well to like bring the tendon into perspective as well because if you're just going weights 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 me dealing with more of a field-based sport like football you see a lot of muscular growth and things can kind of get out of balance in regards to that so like another power i feel like and one of the reasons i really wanted to be bring in jumps bounds and more sprinting is because it's going to balance the tendon versus the muscle profile for a given athlete because that's how you see people get substantially injured sometimes when the profiles get out of whack like that as well. Right. Yeah. I think there, there needs to be that balance between muscle and tendon. So usually with uh, the jump side of things, you know, I, I'm looking at it in terms of we're developing tendon stiffness, right? Um, but then at the same time, we need to make sure that we are giving the muscle what it needs. So, um, you know, if the ten tendon can produce, you know, you know, can stretch and produce this force, the muscle has to be able to deal with that too. Uh, so it's, there's always that interplay. And I think um, there's probably been times where I've gone a little bit further down the road of tendon stiffness than was, than was probably safe uh, in a way. So I think we've come at it, you know, you're, you've come from one end and I probably come at it from the other end, but we're both, you know, kind of saying now, Hey, there's, there, there needs to be that balance between the two. And I've seen you reference as well. So what, you, what you're saying is like, you've had to take into account, you know, the muscle side of the profile as well, but like, mm -hmm. you have to be careful, especially being a, a track and field coach as well, as far as like, the way that you set up a week so that the weight room doesn't take you out or take your balance out, especially being a, a jumps coach. Cause that's like what mm -hmm. you're doing. You're trying to be bouncy. Right. Um, so mm -hmm. can you talk about the benefit of isometrics and some of the different ways in which you've used those? Because to me, starting with a kid first day and then starting with kids who are more elevated, I feel like tempos and isometrics are such a great place to start as far as like starting strength, perhaps not building muscle, but definitely this idea of the property of strength as well. Yeah. So isometrics in, in a lot of ways are a glue, uh, they kind of are a glue that holds everything together uh, within uh, our programming. So, you know, when people are asked like, what do you use them for? It's like, there's, I mean, I can go on and on, uh, but I think one in uh, dealing with high school boys, a lot of them do not have any body awareness, 
like it just is non-existent. So the style of isometric uh, that I tend to employ is more of the extreme isometric uh, where there's like an active pull into position uh, where they're like actually feeling their hamstring fire and actually feeling their glute fire. They're not just like holding on and, you know, trying to be in position. They're actively doing something. And that's a big step for them. Some of them, it takes a while to be like, oh, that's my hamstring. So I think there's value in just uh, one, being able to own a position. Um, at an end range. Uh, I think that is huge to being able to be like, Oh, I, I can make that mind muscle connection. Like I can get this particular muscle to fire. I think that's huge. And then, uh, I, I like them from uh, the standpoint, as you mentioned, there, there is going to be gains from employing that uh, uh, style. Uh, and then also like a, the energy system component too. I think it's to me, there is no safer way to develop an energy system, uh, than, holding an isometric for, for a long duration. It it just, and you can do it a lot. You know, (laughs) I mean, you can, you can perform them for most high school kids. They can perform them literally every day and they're, they're not going to get fried. Yeah. And maybe mentally, maybe, maybe slightly, you know, maybe on the mental side, like I can't take this anymore, but from the physical side, no. Yeah. I've worked with like a kid. He was a college he was a high school pitcher at the time. He was going to college. I was like, you're going to come in tomorrow. You're going to be fine. We were working on isometrics. He's like, coach, I'm going to be trashed tomorrow. I'm like, no, you're, you're going to be coming tomorrow. And actually you're probably going to be better recovered than you would have been if we didn't mm-hmm. go through this. So there's, that's one of the things like isometrics, there's so many different things you can take and then think about like, what do I want to utilize them for? And, and the way like you, you referenced it, like, even looking at kids that are in high school, not even like young teenagers, if you put them in the split stance, like the rate at which the front and the backside like move in comparison to one another, like I've had to like take it and boil it down that simple because you you look and you get like obsessed with the ankle complex or you look at the knee or you look at the hip and I'm like, well, hold on just a minute. It may be the hip, but they're they're not moving at the same rate right now through this whole movement. Even they have an asymmetry yeah. of movement and asymmetry is like present in every movement. But like I even find that. And one of the first things I make them do that so I can find like where are they dominant at, you know, and is mm-hmm. that good and how can we change that? So like one of my biggest like go tos like, you know, forget a movement screen. My movement screen is isometrics because I yep. want to see like where you get like jumps are going to be the next thing. Like whenever we go, I'll look right. at your jumps after that. Those are my mm-hmm. movement screens, you know, for kids, young kids. Yeah, 100 percent. When I have private clients, you know, we jump and then I, I have them get into a lunge position or split position and, and we go and, and you'll, the other one is we'll do is just like a standing leg race. And, uh, you ask them where they fatigue first and, you know, some of them, they'll be like, they'll, they'll know they'll, they'll be like, Oh, it was definitely my hip. It was, uh, you know, it was my, my foot and like ankle calf complex. Uh, and you know, that, that shows you like, they're going to, it's going to show you where, um, the weak link is, uh, which is awesome. I mean, that's a, that's a good thing to know as a coach. Um, and it, it also point out compensations too. So you can see, like, as you were saying, you know, maybe the rate is different or you can watch them move and move around and they're going to try to work their way to be able to maintain that position, maintain the activity. Uh, but they're going to try to dump, you know, the load somewhere else. Uh, so you can kind of, you can kind of get that. I know when I went through it at first, like I was, I was having issues the first cycle through uh, with my lower back, you know, it was like, man, that just feels a little more tight. And that's where I was dumping it. Right. But then I just, it wasn't like take, take time off. It was just keep doing it. And, you know, eventually you're going to, to figure what you're going to dig your way out of that hole, um, which I think is, is a little bit different than uh, what you would hear in, 
in other circles. So, and as far as like, I feel like the isometric has great power to stack as well. Um, something I actually talked about maybe the last podcast and the podcast previous to this, like stacking different things, especially sensory experiences. One thing that I've done is like working on visual and vestibular things as well. Like, do you ever utilize that as well? Because if you are to close your eyes as you're doing split squat, I feel like naturally you begin to have to find that home, find that reference point. That's what I always try and explain to people mm-hmm. because uh, this will come out after this, but I'm going to the square one uh, clinic that we have going on in Dallas, Fort Worth after this, you have that interplay between visual vestibular and proprioceptive happening all the time. Take the visual out. It's like walking into a dark room. So do you mm-hmm. ever utilize different visual positions or closing eyes? And, and what do you utilize that as far as like a reference point for your clients? The closing eyes, I haven't used much just because a lot of them, like I'll use it as a challenge. Uh, so, so then maybe it, it feels easier for them to do it when their eyes are open. Um, but like, yeah, they, they for an extended period of time, most of them would just fall over. Um, that foot begins to pronate and supinate like crazy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Um, I've used uh, different like isocods. Um, uh, you know, following, you know, like I'll just stand in front of them and, and, you know, follow, follow my pen kind of thing. I've done, uh, we use the metronome before to, you know, get that audio input, which I think that's from research from Eddie Rio. So, uh, yeah, definitely, uh, we'll, we'll utilize a wide variety of things there. Um, I'll also do like, you know, in a split stance, we'll do like, uh, like a, if you just hold like a two or three pound weight out in front of you, and, and, and drop it and catch it. Uh, so you're, you know, you're challenging that that's not so much visual. Uh, I mean, I guess there is some visual to that, but uh, just kind of to get them to maybe own that just standard position a little bit better um, while getting an upper body stimulus too. Yeah. And it's like the fact that like Dan Victor, like a lot of different things that he utilizes, you've already referenced him in the podcast, like the ability to like whole body movement as well, because like a lot of the times, I want to talk about planes and, and jumping here coming up in just a moment. But like a lot of the times we're just focused on the lower body or we're locked into a particular plane um, and we're not taking the whole body as far as the brain into consideration. So like those drops or even doing an isometric hold where you're doing a hold upper body and you're in that split stance, like that's, I guess I would almost call it like another generation of isometrics because we had like those body weight isometrics. And now I feel like we're beginning to bring in more of those drops or holds where you're taking the whole body. Like if you really want to attack somebody and let them feel intensity, do a whole, something that would take the whole body into account in regards to an isometric. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and you can do, and this is straight from Dan, but it's the you know, the towel pull or like you have a towel out in front and you snap up and snap down as you're in that split position. So you're, I mean, you're literally getting every tissue to fire in your body. Um, and that's, I mean, that's what I do in my old man workouts. Right. I mean, that's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go and I'm going to, I'm going to go crazy for however little pocket of time I have, you know, 10 minutes in my planning period, you know, what can I do to in my classroom to stimulate my entire body? And, And that's a perfect example of it. Yeah, for sure. Like early morning workouts, that's a great one to pop to at least once or twice a week for sure. So one thing I just referenced before we jumped into that isometric real quick is this idea of planes, because you've talked about crescendo jumps and like, I I just feel like that's on the other end of the spectrum, but I just feel like it's so good to 
introduce people to a broad profile of things. Like even if you're a specialized athlete, you, I know you're very close with like TFC individuals, like multi-sport athletes, they're good because they get to experience like dynamic processes, like within a game type setting, right? The ability to use different planes with jumping. Jumping is something that can become re- very redundant and repetitive. So how do you bring in different planes to build a more holistic athlete? I just finished a uh, jump specialist uh, course uh, this weekend. The instructors were Todd Lane at LSU and Kaba Tolbert from uh, Harvard. And Kaba had a great quote. He said, uh, variety is the mother of injury prevention. And when he said that, I, I thought about like the different planes of movement that uh, we're always addressing uh, within jumping. And I, I've referenced this before, but like, even if we're going to do something that's high intensity, like a, a bound test or something like that, I've found that athletes perform better if give them a wide variety of activity and preparation for that test. So yeah, I think it, it's super important when I design warmups, I'm thinking, you know, did, did it, obviously I'm going to address the sagittal point, right? That's, that's, that's a given, but um, did I do something lateral? Did I do something rotational? You know, did I do something diagonal? Like those are things that, that really work their way into every single one of our warmups. Um, you know, are we doing things on a, which would be rotational, but on a curve, you know, that's, always just giving the tissue a little bit of a different stimulus, I think goes such a long way to prevent overuse injuries. And then that, that's so common in track and field, I think, um, just because the task is consistent. Um, so it's super important for us um, to provide that variety. Uh, you know, a basketball player is going to get the variety, right? I mean, that, that's organic. Um, so maybe they need to hit more of the intensity uh, side of things. So I think it, it depends on your situation, but, uh, regardless, I, the track player. Yeah. I kind of cut out there the last part, but as far as like playing preferences, I'm, I'm interested to, to see, do you ever utilize med balls? Cause we talked about isometrics. We've talked about the weight room. One of the things I like to utilize as well to like let people move organically is med balls, because like, that's a great power production tool. I feel like that chains better jumps and sprints sometimes in the weight room. So do you ever utilize med balls within your practices to get in different ranges of power production? Yes. Uh, we like, I mean, I like the underhand forward you know, overhand backward, those are great ones. Uh, the squatting like chest press, those are, those are all, all good. Um, I like from the jump side of things, I, I think just teaching the skill of like unfolding and acceleration. I, I mean, I think the underhand forward tosses is, is fantastic. Uh, you know, so many kids struggle, you know, and it's probably the worst cue that you hear in really any sport. And it's just like, stay low. And, and it definitely happens obviously in track and field. Uh, but I can, you know, remember playing football and hearing, you know, like line, line coaches saying stay low. Uh, and there, there's like a point to that, but for track, like the, the most thing that people have an issue with is like, they hear that stay low and then they're, they're bent at the right. So that unfolding where we're going to get to a, a straight line from head to toe is, is a skill that is a struggle for many. And I think the med ball throws are a great teaching tool for that specifically. I try and we've talked about variation in the last couple of points and I've tried to vary my starts as well, like for young athletes too, to let them experience different processes that would make them realize, Oh, I've, I've, you know, risen at a unusual rate, basically, you know, you have the push up and you have starting from knees. And a lot of the times I would like to do a med ball throw 
and then bring in a start. Like I was working today, working like calling, pushing back and then pushing through like that extension that will occur. And I was like, okay, now simplify it. Don't go to your heels, set straight up and now drive out with your legs. Like to, trying to find those inventive ways to get that start because it doesn't matter. Like anybody I deal with, I'm going to tell them there's two phases to this. We want to learn that low portion and again, what happens? People bend over. So yeah, mm-hmm. you know, firsthand experience with that. But I'm like, how many different variabilities of like starting low can I give them? You know, leaning into partners, leaning into bands, um, using 1080, all these different things, like leaning into things, teaching them to do that, and then giving them those organic starts from the ground to experience. You know, that's something that I've had to utilize a lot. And med balls, I deal with a lot of athletes that also play rotational sports as well and like Mm -hmm. teaching them to chain the ribs and the pelvis together because i'm like you're not moving through your hips you're not able to follow you know rib cage thorax and the hips together like that's a dynamic movement that must be taught um and i think everybody Mm -hmm. could benefit from learning that yeah i I agree uh and so i growing up I, i played you know football basketball baseball um and I was a pitcher and, and a quarterback. So like kind of, I would say I was never really not necessarily taught like prop, like super like technical ways on how to throw, but like organically, like I've kind of learned how to use my hips. Um, you know, I, I'm seeing a lot of kids who come out and like, when you watch them, they, I would totally agree. Like they, they, it just, it does not look fluid at all. So I, I, I hear you on that one. It, it's something that, um, you know, they missed along their, the way. Uh, for sure. And it, it's something that just, again, it gets back to that body awareness thing, um, you know, and then that they can feel that difference, then maybe they can bring that to other avenues. So kind of last talking point, I like to drill home here. And I guess we can attack this from a couple different ways. I know that you have resources um, that you're able to use. So your answers may differ from what a normal coach would. So like, it's all dependent on what you have at your disposal. But as far as like jumps, if you're profiling an athlete, I guess you would say for, um, athletic abilities. I know you use, like you referenced the Scandinavian rebound. What are some other things and and why do you utilize those things to look at your jumpers capabilities? And I guess perhaps maybe some suggestions if they don't have a muscle grid, um, cause you have a muscle grid, correct? Yes. Uh, so uh, I use that test specifically just because it, uh, I think it's both a skill and a test. So, I think we're, I, I see athletes who really are just, it's, it's a bounce test. So they, they struggle with that concept of just being bouncy. So one, I'm getting a metric, you know, they see the RSI, they want to improve uh, and get a better metric. And it also allows me to identify some talent. It allows me to get readiness, you know, to see if they're ready. So I think there, there's a lot of advantages to that, but um, you'll also see that as time goes on, they just, as they do that test, they, they, that skill improves. So the metrics improve. And the question, so I don't interrupt you too much before you get going. Do you utilize any of these tests as like a daily readiness? Um, So do you take RSI for like a daily readiness? Not, not daily, not daily. If, if I had to choose between like the, like a counter movement jump or the rebound jump test, I would do the rebound jump test uh, for readiness, just because I think it teases out, you know, some anomalies because it's just more it's more, there's more jumps. Um, and you, you just, you can kind of see as you watch athletes do it, you, you know, like if they're, they're looking bouncy or not, uh, there's data to back it up too, but 
Yeah, and you may be able to actually see like different ranges of the the body too. Like it it may actually be like a joint action um, Mm -hmm. for some of the things that we've referenced or like a muscle group um, that may Mm -hmm. feel, you know, tight. And some of the things we referenced RPR, some of these more reflexive things could be utilized, you know, to maybe get them up and running or we take it easy because you want to be careful, right? Yeah. I mean, my main readiness test is, Hey, how you doing? <laughs> like, like that's, and that works pretty well. If you, if you're consistent with that and you try to make contact, you know, a verbal contact with the kid every day, but it is, it is helpful, uh, especially for us. Like I'll do it, uh, at the beginning of the week, especially if we're coming off like a meet or something. And I think that the athlete might be a little cash from what they did and they're like, Oh no, I feel good. You know, cause they just want to do that day's activity. But then you look at it and you're like, uh, you know, you're going to, you're going to be a plan B kid today, you know, we'll come back and we'll get this tomorrow. So that's, that's one uh, that I, I think just there, there's a ton of positives uh, to it. So are there any other data metrics that you use in particular as, as you track your jumpers along to look for preparedness or like something that you're looking at to look at, like the fact that they're peaking. Um, and you could even talk about sprint metrics as well. That may be something that, that you would consider um, for jumpers. With the uh, contact grid, I'll also use it. It, it gives power. So when we're bounding, uh, they, they like to have that out and uh, we'll, we use that to uh, track power. So it gives them, again, a, a metric to attach to. There's ways that they found to kind of work their way around to get a higher metric on that. So like we've had to restrict it to certain contact times because they'll just, they start going up super high when they're bounding. And you know, part of it is just flight time. So it's, it, but then they have a, a longer ground contact time. So, you know, we're like, no, you have to keep your ground contact time under this. Um, but yeah, that, that's one. Uh, and it gives, like, I have, you know, some data now having it a few years where I can say, you know, Hey, this kid was a state champion triple jumper and you're, you're right around where, where he is, you know? So, you know, you're a, you're a sophomore, you're pretty close to where he was, uh, you know, what, what are you going to be able to be? It gives them, uh, you know, a little bit of motivation there. Uh, other than that, I mean, when we get into like the peaking situation, I mean, the biggest thing is just making sure that they're feeling good. And I mean, really the competition is going to be the biggest, you know, metric that, that we capture. Um, everything's going to be kind of uh, built on that. And we'll typically see, you know, some, some nice things in practice at that time too, partially because usually that's when the weather starts to break for us. So it's, you know, it's, it's hard to tell, but I mean, you know, you, you can kind of just, by that time you've, you've watched them run for, for 19 weeks, you, you kind of have an idea uh, where they're at heading into it. Uh, but for people without like, you know, fancier equipment, I mean, the bounce test can be done with a tape measure, right? I mean, so that the biggest thing, like it, it's super simple, but you have them, let's just say it's a, uh, a six, six bound test. And maybe they have six steps of an approach going into it, have them do it once mark it with a cone and then have them do it again and try to beat it. And, and they, they will. Or I mean, have someone else time. beat it. I love competition. Like, one right. Of the yeah, most, for sure. You know, great things you can do is say, okay, this is so-and-so's mark. Okay. Um, yeah, let's yeah. see what you can do now. <laughs> right. Right. And if, and if you have that top dog that never, never gets beat, then that's, you know, you, you have to beat yours. Right. So it's, it's, it, it's huge uh, just to give them that motivation. And it's like, it never happens where it's just that first rep where it, that, that just stays there. Right. Someone's beating that number. Right. And uh, yeah, I think it's, I'll tend to break them up into like with that test. If I have a group of 20, let's say um, I'll, I'll break them up into like groups of five of, of, you know, like level athletes. So then it, it gets that competition can get pretty intense. 
Yeah. And I'm, I can probably guess the answer, but like, as far as the symmetry, last, last talking point here, like, do you ever looking at so many different contexts, especially being with the jumps coach, like, do you take a symmetry into account in regards to like capabilities or injury uh, prevention? You mentioned earlier, like there's going to be some asymmetry uh, within everybody. I look at it from the standpoint, you know, if I have an athlete who is a high jumper and a long jumper, right, they're going to, and they jump off their left leg. That's, that's a ton of, ton of work with that left leg. Not to say that the right isn't getting any, right. But you know, that, that jump leg is going to be going to be dealing with more forces. So anytime that we're doing uh, drills and that kind of thing, I mean, we're going to be balanced between the legs. Um, Anytime we're doing like plyometrics, it's going to be a balance between the legs. So if, you know, we're jumping up our, you know, we're doing hops on our left, we're going to do the same number with hops on the right. Uh, if we're doing attempts, I'll even have them jump off the wrong leg, you know, intentionally. Uh, so it may be like, especially, uh, with high jump, I say, I do it uh, quite a bit. You know, there's a lot of like our horizontal guys who will do long and triple. So they kind of get both anyway, but with high jumpers, um, I'll have them do like, if we do 10, short approach jumps, um, off their left leg, I might have them do five from the other side. Um, and that's another, like sounds wild, but another really great potentiator for them too. Uh, just because it's like that neurological reset, like trying to get them to do something else. So they're stuck, you know, trying to hit a height off their left leg. And it's like, okay, now come back over to the other side and try to do two. And they're like, but I'm struggling over here. I'm like, no, just, just try it. And then they go back and then they, they clear the height. And they're like, what happened? I was like, well, you just got out of your head. Like it, you know, kind of got out of your head and it's just a, a clean slate. Yeah. It's interesting to watch people deal with even just like doing like step-ups, like more dynamic step-ups and they're really good on one leg and they're terrible on the other leg. Right. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's clearly like some neurological consideration going on there as far as like the way that they deal with the gate process and everything. But to kind of close this out, like as a coach, one of the things again, that I've referenced here that has grown on me over the last, I'd probably say two years is jumping and how beneficial it can be for any sport, any program. I have a four-year-old son and we're always talking about different jumps. We're always sprinting and jumping. It's a great place to start. If you can sprint, jump, lift, and throw. To me, you have a really well-balanced profile uh, for dynamic display of athletic capability. So, and probably in that order, sprint, jump, lift, throw, I'd be happy with it. So I've really enjoyed setting down and kind of dicing some of these different things out. Um, Looking at the overall idea, I tend to periodize my jumps as I go with athletes. We're more strength-based further away from competition, getting ready for it. Then we become more speed-based. So our joint angles change, our ground contacts change, and that drives like attention to detail it you know you tell your kids you can say ground contact's not good here based upon our data and what we're gathering here so like to me including jumps it's been one way to increase our sprint capabilities and then also make our strength I guess you would say work more contrasted and potentiate our strength work too. So just, I've enjoyed being able to listen to you talk about it because you work with track and field, but just to say jumps have been widely beneficial for me and my program in the last two to three years as well. Yeah. And it sounds like you, you got a good handle on it, man. So it's, uh, I'm glad to hear they're helping. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's the big thing is just keeping, you know, it's not, I actually went golfing uh, today and uh, with our head coach and like we had a common theme in, in our common conversations that developed. And it was like, everything is so polarized these days. Like, I mean, literally everything. So like having that mix of activity, I think is huge. And 
um, you know, at certain times you might focus in on one particular area more than others, but like just to have that global perspective uh, is great. And I think that's something that we can take into, uh, into the real world <laughs> too, for sure. For sure. And I like you saying that too, because it's like people always want the magic pill and it's like, well, go, go try it out a couple of times. And then like, you'll figure out what works best for you because every group of kids is different. And you just don't ever know. It's like, it's variable, you know? So like you have to go out, experiment, try different things out. So, you know, anybody listening, go out, try out, see what works best, but every group is different. So it just depends. Before we jump off, I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about where people can find you. I know you have a lot of great writings on Simply Faster, so I'll probably link your article page for that. But where else can people find you and what else do you have going on? Uh, yeah, so uh, Simply Faster uh, is where I do most of my writing through. Um, I have an LLC. It's called uh, Re Evolution Athletics. And why did you um, name it that? I'm interested to know because like my yeah. name's from the ground <laughs> up. I have a particular reason. Yeah. So well, why, why Re Evolution? I feel like uh, in some ways we're devolving as a species. <laughs> so uh, that's the primary reason. Like we're going to, you know, we'll, we'll go through some things and um, kind of get our bodies to do what they were intended to do. Uh, that, so that was the, the big reason behind that. Uh, but uh, there I have, you know, on, on my site, I have, you know, links to articles, um, training stuff. Um, I have a store that has, you know, some video resources and that kind of thing. So uh, that would probably be, you know, one one area to, uh, to check out. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter handles at HF jumps, uh, same with Instagram, same handle. So people can uh, feel free to, to reach out to me that way. Um, I'm, I've, I've been fortunate to have uh, a lot of people answer my questions over the years. So I'm always happy to do that. Everything you just referenced will provide in the uh, podcast notes. So guys, check that out. If you want to check out uh, Coach CC's uh, Instagram, Twitter, all those other things that he has offered. So thank you for sitting down, taking time out of your day today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Check the show notes for links to Rob's socials as well as other materials. I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor for this week's show, Aminico, again. Take my word. If you want to up your ability to perform at a high level, give their Perform Amino Blend a chance. Links are located within the show notes and on my webpage. Save 30% by using code FTG at checkout. Don't forget to head over to FromTheGroundUpAthleticPerformance.com where you can sign up to receive the monthly podcast newsletter. You can also see more detailed write-ups of each week's episode. If you enjoy the content, Make sure to hit the subscribe button and don't hesitate to leave a rating and a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.